0: This is the EM Cases, EM Quick Hits podcast, where our team of experts and educators bring you clear, concise, and condensed, practice-changing knowledge on all those EM topics that you may not be totally comfortable with. Cases, the latest evidence, procedural tips and tricks, pitfalls to avoid, and the key take-home points and references on the EM Cases website. Quick, let's get on with it.
1: talk for a minute about the interaction between acetaminophen and warfarin. This is I think maybe one of the most dangerous drug interactions out there because acetaminophen's everywhere and I think a lot of us aren't familiar with this interaction. I was I was I was a pharmacist for 5 years and I thought nothing about telling people just to take a, I knew they shouldn't take aspirin with warfarin or ibuprofen with warfarin. Had no problem saying go ahead and take and take acetaminophen. But I wonder how many people were harmed by that advice. Okay so now imagine that you're seeing your I don't know 20th patient of the day and they're on warfarin and you get a lab back and the INR is 6.5 and the patient is adamant that not only was the INR 2.5 you know 2 weeks ago but she hasn't changed her dose at all. And you know, why might it be that the INR is so much higher than intended? And one thing that we we don't talk about often enough is the potential for acetaminophen or paracetamol, depending where you work, to potentiate the effects of warfarin. This is, this is, I think, one of the most dangerous drug interactions out there because most people have never heard of it or they have some sort of passing awareness of it. But acetaminophen is just ubiquitous. And so what's this interaction all about? This is a complicated one. And so to understand this interaction requires understanding exactly how warfarin works. When you have a patient on warfarin and their INR is 2.5, it's because warfarin has interfered with the vitamin K cycle. And I'm going to walk you through this. Imagine factor 7, it doesn't do anything until it's activated. 2, 7, 9, and 10, they have to be activated, and they're activated by an enzyme it's called gamma carboxylase. And you know what's this all it does is attach a little carboxyl residue to factor 7 to make factor 7A and you're good to go. That enzyme requires vitamin K as a cofactor. And once the enzyme has done its job, you've used up your vitamin K and you've got to recycle it. Well, the recycling of vitamin K involves an enzyme, and warfarin blocks that enzyme. So, the, another way of saying this is that when you've got a patient who's got an INR of 2.5 and all is good in the world, the reason the INR is 2.5 is because you have depleted the patient of reduced usable vitamin K just enough to compromise the activity of that carboxylase. And so their factor 7A levels are low. What on earth does acetaminophen have to do with this? The same metabolite of acetaminophen that will trash your liver if you take 100 tablets and wait 12 hours to come to hospital is made in small amounts with doses of two or three grams a day. We, we, We make it. Most of us, Just detoxify it. You know, we don't make that much of it, and glutathione mops it up. But in some people, for reasons we don't fully understand, this metabolite, NAPCI, is made with, you know, two or three or four grams a day, and it directly damages or interferes with that enzyme, the target of warfarin's therapy. And this happens, like, overnight. If you've got someone who is on warfarin and has a, you know, an INR in the therapeutic range, and then they start acetaminophen 4 grams a day, we'll say... It is sometimes the case that a day or two later, their INR will be five or six or seven. Um, and and this happens to some people more than others. It's not really that well understood, uh, but the mechanism is very clear. And so I think the thing for eMERGE docs to know is A, the patient who's got the unexplained elevation in their INR might have it because they've been taking acetaminophen, whether it's you know, Tylenol for a headache, or Percocet, or Vicodin, or Sinutab or you know, Tylenol seems everywhere, and so it's very easy for people to get into trouble like this. The other point to be aware of is that you know we routinely put people on a and we don't think twice about it when they're on warfarin. Sometimes so we, we we're, we're all wary of using NSAIDs because we don't want to cause GI Toxicity and increased risk of bleeding if their factors are already messed up. But I think sometimes we forget that acetaminophen can cause this problem too. So, this interaction is a bit different than most others. You know, most interactions, what we know about them, come from, you know, case reports here and there or studies in healthy volunteers. This interaction's got a fair bit more evidence behind it. There are even some RCTs where, you know, they take people on warfarin and they give them acetaminophen or placebo and they see what happens to their INR. And the bottom line of that is that on average, there is a bump in the INR that's not that great, but that's the average rise. And I think what's really important to realize here is that not everyone responds in the same way. And somebody might have an INR that goes up you know, by 0.7. Someone else might go up by 2 or 2.5 given the same dose. And so the, I think the key message here is that the how this interaction manifests at the individual patient level varies dramatically. The best review of this interaction, if you want to sort of spend some time digging into it a bit more, is published in Blood in 2001. The author's last name is Renato Lopes, and it's an open access publication, sort of, you know, really spells out what we know, or what we knew at the time at least, about, you know, why this interaction happens and what to be wary of. What they they recommend in that paper is if you're going to put somebody on acetaminophen for more than 2 grams a day for more than three days, you know. Check the INR, you know, five days down the road. I I, I worry a little bit that that recommendation is a little conservative because it's not too hard to tell a story how somebody could be on you know two or three grams just for a day or two, and end up with an INR of five or six or seven. I've seen it myself under controlled circumstances, and usually it's somebody who's you know malnourished or they're sick. So this interaction, I think, is worth thinking about if you've got a patient in front of you who's on warfarin and whose INR is unexpectedly high, you know, they, they haven't, you know, had a recent dose change. They haven't been sick. They haven't been on antibiotics. Um, you know, why would it be that their INR is seven or eight? Just ask about acetaminophen, you know, because we all have it in our homes. Like it's it's just, it's everywhere and people don't think twice about taking it. So, you know, it's it's a good thing for eMERGE docs to pick this up, even, even if the patient's not bleeding. You know, you might well save the patient from a bleed, you know, a year from now, if you've made them aware of the fact that it isn't necessarily safe to combine acetaminophen with warfarin.
0: That was none other than David Yerlink, the head of toxicology at University of Toronto. All right, so some people who take two to three grams or more of acetaminophen daily will produce enough napke, the toxic byproduct, that will interfere with the gamma carboxylase enzyme that requires vitamin K as a cofactor, and that'll cause the INR to reach dangerous levels. So think twice about prescribing acetaminophen or any product containing acetaminophen to patients taking warfarin, and for any patient who presents with bleeding while taking warfarin, ask about acetaminophen use. Next up, we've got Hans Rosenberg on
2: dental infections. Today, we're going to talk about dental infections, specifically periapical abscesses and pulpitis. Dental caries can lead to the breakdown of teeth, allowing bacteria to enter the pulp, and there, it can cause a pulpitis. Pulpitis is an inflammatory process within the pulp. I know, I know, you weren't sure. It it was one of those riveting moments. Now, pulpitis can also be reversible or irreversible. Again, as the names say, there's either a process that perhaps can be quickly fixed with something like a dental caries removal and filling, or irreversible where you get pulp necrosis and all of a sudden you're in a situation where you require a root canal. If this inflammatory process persists and we get bacterial transmission to the apex of the tooth, you can develop a periapical abscess. This can, of course, lead to a tooth that is painful, can be cold or hot sensitive, and may be quite tender on percussion of the tooth, much like pulpitis, which would do all of these things. Unlike pulpitis, though, the tooth can become elevated and the surrounding area can develop erythema, swelling, lymphadenopathy, and in some cases can lead to extension into deeper tissues that may lead to systemic infections or airway compromise. So you see, dental infections are pretty awesome. They can be really cool and you can be like, man, I nearly lost this guy's airway because they had this terrible dental infection that led to this really, really bad airway. I don't know if that sounds exciting to you, but it sounds exciting to me. In cases of reversible pulpitis, the ED treatment is simply analgesics that include anti-inflammatories such as ibuprofen or naproxen. The definitive treatment is caries removal and a filling. For irreversible pulpitis, the ED treatment is the same, however the definitive treatment will be a root canal. In cases where there is a periapical abscess, then the treatment, like all other abscesses, is surgical drainage. This can be accompanied via root canal, or drainage of the pus via the oral mucosa or skin. Often, but not necessarily, extraction of the tooth may accompany the treatment. Now, most guidelines will actually suggest that there's no role for antibiotics in the context of an uncomplicated periapical abscess. If there is a complicated infection, so what does that mean? Well, it means fevers, progressive cellulitis, bacteremia, airway compromise, then antibiotics that will provide gram-positive and anaerobic coverage will be required. Now you say, this is all fine and dandy, except for one thing. Most of the patients that I encounter in the emergency department don't have the means to see a dentist for an appropriate filling, root canal, or dental extraction. A recent best available evidence review from Annals of Emergency Medicine titled, Are Antibiotics Necessary for Dental Pain Without an Overt Infection, found that in patients without overt signs of infection, antibiotics did not prevent infection or reduce pain in those patients' prescribed antibiotics. But... Like much in emergency medicine, there is consideration of the patient factors such as social issues, financial issues, reliability on follow-up, that may lead us to stray from the best evidence. As such, I'm going to describe to you what my ED treatment for patients with either pulpitis or periapical abscess is like. If I think a patient has pulpitis, I will provide them with clear instructions on taking analgesics, I educate them on their condition, and explain that the definitive treatment lies with a dentist do my best to avoid opioid analgesics for these conditions. In rare cases, like some of our homeless population, where I know they will not access a dental specialist and are often reticent to access emergency care, I will give them a prescription for antibiotics for them to do a watchful waiting approach. The antibiotic of choice in this case for me is usually penicillin or clindamycin if they're pen allergic. If they get any signs of a periapical abscess, then they start the antibiotic. If I think the patient has a periapical abscess, I do the same approach as above. If they can get to a dentist urgently, that is where I direct them. If they can't afford it and it's an uncomplicated infection, then I'll provide them with a 7-10 to day prescription of amoxicillin or clindamycin. If it is complicated or there are any concerns regarding the airway, I will contact our maxillofacial surgeons for admission to hospital in addition to a discussion with ENT in case there are any concerns for the airway. In our institution, the usual antibiotic of choice for intravenous treatment of these patients is clindamycin, however, using a combination of ceftriaxone with flagell, or perhaps piperacillin and is very reasonable. So in summary, learn to differentiate pulpitis and periapical abscess. Always treat the patient's pain. Periapical abscesses and pulpitis usually require definitive dental treatment. However, if you are unable to help your patient get to a dentist, then you may want to consider antibiotics in patients who are at high risk or in cases of systemic infection.
0: All right, so how do you differentiate pulpitis from a periapical abscess? You've got to consider the duration of the pain and the secondary signs like tooth elevation, swelling, adjacent cellulitis, lymphadenopathy, and fever. Now, the definitive treatment of both pulpitis and periapical abscess really require a dentist because they're surgical. Your role in the ED is to diagnose, treat the pain, trying to avoid opiates wherever possible, and consider antibiotics based on patient factors, both physiologic and social. Now, most guidelines suggest that there's no role for antibiotics for uncomplicated periapical abscess. And in a recent review of two RCTs in Annals of EM, patients presenting with dental pain without overt signs of infection were not found to be benefited by penicillin. What about patients who can't see a dentist for whatever reason? I love the watchful waiting approach with a prescription for penicillin for 7 to 10 days to be taken only if they develop secondary signs of infection like I was talking about before. Next up is Emily Austin on
3: Massive APAP. Acetaminophen overdose is a really common presentation to the emergency department. In a typical case of acetaminophen toxicity, a significant amount of the toxic metabolite NAPQI gets formed and we deplete our stores of glutathione trying to mop it all up. Without treatment, patients can go on to develop liver failure, needing transplants, and even occasionally dying from acute liver failure. Fortunately, as we all know, we have N-acetylcysteine or NAC, which is an effective treatment if it's given in an appropriate time frame. NAC works to restore glutathione stores and allows NAPKey to be conjugated to non-toxic metabolites. And as we all know, most of the patients that come in do okay. Consider the following case. A 61-year-old female is found confused with a fluctuating and altered level of consciousness by her husband. He'd last seen her about three hours before, and at that time she was acting normally. EMS brings her to you, where she's got normal vital signs, and other than a GCS of about nine, she has an unremarkable physical exam. Along with a CT head and a bunch of blood work, you order a serum tox screen. A little while later, you start getting phone calls from the lab. Her VBG is markedly abnormal, with a pH of 7.19, a PCO2 of 34, and a bicarb of 11. Her serum lactate is elevated at about 9. The lab calls again a little while later. Her serum acetaminophen level is super high, at about 5,490 millimoles per liter. You know to start NAC right away, but this patient has a crazy high level. Is there anything else you could be doing? This is a picture of a much less common pattern of acetaminophen poisoning, that of a massive ingestion. In these cases, a patient will have taken a huge amount of acetaminophen, often well over 500 milligrams per kilogram, and they present to the emergency department with a decreased GCS and a metabolic lactic acidosis. The pathophysiology here is actually a little bit different from our normal acetaminophen poisoning. What seems to be happening is that it's actually the acetaminophen parent compound and not just the toxic metabolite of napke that's causing toxicity. These massively poisoned acetaminophen patients present with a decreased or altered level of consciousness and a significant metabolic acidosis with a high lactate. Their acetaminophen levels are really, really high. The cutoff in Canada for starting N-acetylcysteine treatment at the four-hour mark is 1,000 millimoles per liter these patients are coming in with levels over 5,000 easily. Of note, their liver enzymes are often within the normal range, and they haven't shown any signs of hepatotoxicity as of yet. There's some suggestion that regular NAC dosing is inadequate to prevent liver injury in patients with these massive ingestions, and some people advocate for giving higher doses of NAC. As well, acetaminophen is a small, water-soluble molecule, and its volume of distribution is about a liter per kilo. It's these features that make it amenable to extracorporeal removal through hemodialysis. Now, obviously, as everybody knows, in a typical acetaminophen overdose, there's no indication to remove acetaminophen by any external means. NAC is a great antidote, and more often than not, it's going to be effective in helping to mitigate the risk of liver toxicity. However, in these rare cases of a really massive acetaminophen ingestion, we can offer dialysis to help remove the acetaminophen parent compound and possibly some of the toxic metabolite of napki, and also to correct some of the acid-base imbalances. In 2014, a set of expert recommendations was published by the Xtrip group for the specifics on when dialysis might be appropriate. Essentially, the Xtrip group concluded that if the acetaminophen concentration is really, really, really high, think over 5,000 millimoles per liter, and if a patient has evidence of altered level of consciousness or a metabolic lactic acidosis, we should be picking up the phone to chat with our nephrologists. It's possible that hemodialysis will help this patient. Along with an initial bolus dose of n she actually was intubated and then transferred to the ICU. She received intermittent hemodialysis for about six hours. Her subsequent pH was normal and her acetaminophen level was under a 1,000. Fortunately, this patient never went on to elevate her liver enzymes, and she was cleared to psych a few days after treatment. The take-home messages, massive acetaminophen overdose is a unique presentation where patients will come in with potentially altered LOC and a lactic acidosis in the absence of hepatic dysfunction. The vast majority are effectively managed with N-acetylcysteine or NAC, but in these massive overdoses, standard NAC dosing may be inadequate, And there's often a role for hemodialysis.
0: Beautiful summary by Dr. Austin. Next up is massive transfusion protocol decisions and the rabbit score in trauma with the one and only Dr. Andrew Petrosoniak, Petro.
4: Trying to decide whether to activate MTP can be one of those really tricky decisions we face on a regular basis when we're taking care of trauma patients. We have this competing pull between making sure that we have blood early enough for the recess, but at the same time, not activating it too early and essentially crying wolf. Just like Goldilocks who wants her porridge just right, not too hot or not too cold, we look to call for blood for just the right patients, not too late for the ones who need it, and not at all for the ones who don't. So how do we make this decision? Well, I want to introduce you to this recently published revised assessment of bleeding and transfusion score, or RABBIT for short. We'll come back to that after we get into a case, though. EMS arrives with a patient who is involved in a high-speed MVC. From the urgency of EMS rushing the patient in, you realize he's probably pretty sick. He's got a decreased level of consciousness, about a GCS of 10. His blood pressure is 95 on 50 and a heart rate of 105. His pelvis is bound with a sheet done by EMS. His abdominal fast is negative negative and on EFAS there's no evidence of pneumothorax. Your impression is that he's got hemorrhagic shock from a pelvic fracture and possibly a head injury. You have a bunch of other things to consider, but the nurse who you're working with leans over to ask you whether you want to activate MTP. What a great question. There's a few decision tools out there, but we're gonna apply the Rabbit score to see how it works. First off, some background. I think it's important to know that most of the studies out there define a massive transfusion as 10 units in 24 hours. And unfortunately, when research decide whether an MTP prediction tool is useful, they base it on its ability to predict exactly that, 10 units in 24 hours. But this is not really what we're interested in at the bedside. We're interested in whether we need a bunch of blood right now. I digress, but it's worth thinking about when we consider any MTP prediction tool. So there's a few scores out there already. There's the ABC score, which is actually pretty similar to the RABBIT score. It's a four-point score made up of the following components. Heart rate greater than 120, systolic blood pressure less than 90, positive fast, and penetrating injury. Two or more predicts the need for massive transfusion. With pretty good sensitivity of 75% and specificity of 86% in the original study, But to be honest, subsequent studies really haven't been nearly as promising with sensitivities less than 50%. So lots of false negatives. And then there's the shock index, which is essentially a component of the rabbit score. And it's been studied on its own. It's defined as the heart rate over the systolic blood pressure. And a shock index greater than one or the heart rate is greater than the systolic blood pressure is often the cutoff. And it has a sensitivity of 67% and a specificity of 81% in predicting massive transfusion. There's a bunch of other scores too, but they all require blood work, so we won't even bother considering those. Back to the RABBIT score, though. In an article published by Joseph and colleagues in the World Journal of Surgery in 2018, they compared the ABC score with this new RABBIT score. RABBIT scores comprised of four elements similar to the ABC. Number one, positive fast. Number two, shock index greater than one. Number three, presence of a pelvic fracture. And number four, penetrating injury. Overall, using a cutoff of two or more, the sensitivity was 84% and specificity was 77% to predict the need for massive transfusion. This was way better than the ABC score, which had a low sensitivity in this study of 39% and a somewhat lower specificity of 72%. I really like the rabbit score because it's face validity makes sense. It incorporates the shock index, which alone is pretty good and add the pelvic fraction, which is so often a contributor to hemorrhagic shock, especially among the trauma patients we're used to seeing in Canada it makes this score really applicable. few things to mention though, about the paper. First, we don't know what kind of pelvic fractures are included, but presumably any fracture seen on X-ray or a clinically unstable pelvis is sufficient. Second, This score hasn't been externally validated, so the EABM people out there would say it's not ready for prime time. Though in my opinion, it's not like we have many better options. So add this to your clinical judgment and it might help with providing some objectivity to your decision making. Now back to our case. Our patient suffered a blunt trauma mechanism. He's got a blood pressure of 95 on 50 and a heart rate of 105. So his shock index is greater than 1, but he actually doesn't score any points for vital signs according to the ABC score. He's got a pelvic fracture and a negative FAST. So his rabbit score is 2, while his ABC score is actually 0. This really highlights the value of the shock index instead of individual vital signs, and also including the presence of a pelvic fracture. This is a patient I'd definitely activate my MTP for. So while the rabbit score probably shouldn't be included in any institutional policy for MTP activation yet, I think it's definitely quite promising and certainly can augment your current clinical judgment. Next time you're faced with a trauma patient who's bleeding and you're trying to decide about whether you should activate your MTP, consider the rabbit score coupled with your clinical judgment, and all of its four elements can be easily established at the bedside. All
0: right, so the revised assessment of bleeding and transfusion score, the rapid score is shock index greater than one, pelvic fracture, positive fast, penetrating injury. And if you score two or more, this is actually better than the ABC score at predicting the need for a massive transfusion. Remember, it's not prospectively validated. However, Dr. Petrosoniak does recommend considering incorporating the elements of the score into your decision-making when it comes to activating MTP for your bleeding trauma patients. Next up from the Update in Emergency Medicine Whistler Conference that we've covered on EM cases many times before, we have one of my favorite EBM gurus, Dr. Joel Yaffe, talking about statins in STEMI.
5: Okay, I wanna talk about uh, the Secure PCI study. So Secure PCI, so this was a multi setter study done in Brazil, and what they wanted to do is they took a whole bunch of people who they knew had ACS, they were going to cath. And there had been some suggestion that giving people statins prior to cath could have some benefits. So uh, what they did was they took this patient population and they gave them 80 milligrams of atorvastatin pre-cath. If it was a a non-STEMI that was going to cath, they gave it between two and 12 hours. If it was a STEMI, they gave it as soon as they could. And some of them got it fairly close to their cath, but they did what they could. And then they gave them another 80 milligrams 24 hours after the first dose. And then they did what all of these people would get anyways. Uh, They were put on 40 milligrams a day of a statin uh, after that. So, their results. They looked at uh, major adverse cardiac events at 30 days. Standard stuff, death, MI, stroke, uh, urgent revascularization. And if they looked at the whole group that they had targeted, they said, you know what, there's no benefit. There was about a 12% decrease in MACE, but it was not significant. They had talked about some secondary endpoints. And look, I, I understand there are risks at looking at secondary endpoints, so we have to put this in perspective, but, they published their data looking at some secondary analyses, not secondary endpoints, secondary analyses. And they said, okay, here were all the patients. If we just looked at the patients that actually went to PCI, they actually had a significant 28% reduction. I mean, it's a little hard to know what to do with this because you don't know when they go to cath who's going to have the PCI and who's not. So if you just look at this, you say, I don't know what to do with it because if I give it to everybody... I'm not gonna have a benefit and I can't pick out who's gonna have a a cat. You follow that? It's kind of challenging. But look what happens if they looked at the STEMI population. STEMIs we do know. STEMIs you know before they leave your department. And if they looked at the STEMI population and they gave them the 80 up front and an 80 in 12 hours, 34% reduction of all STEMIs and a 41% reduction in STEMIs who went to PCI, that's potentially huge. Potentially huge. So, granted, this was a secondary analysis and you have to kind of be a little bit careful. But there has not been any suggestion that this drug is at all gonna cause any danger, number one. And number two, all of these people are gonna be go- going home on statins. So uh, the question I asked to our cathing person is, is this something that I could consider giving to our STEMI people before they go to the cath lab and he's a guy who says yeah i'm involved in the guidelines joel absolutely i would have no problem he would have no problem so i'm going to throw this out to you whether in your STEMI population do your STEMI protocol if you have time and if you're not going to slow down things and get in the way of things that we know make a difference uh, consider adding on 80 milligrams of atorvastatin when you can and I think I would do this. I think I would ask for it. When I go in with my STEMI, I'm going to say yes. And I'm kind of the latest adopter you're ever going to get. I, I was compelled by this argument. So I would go for it.
0: A very balanced assessment of the literature, as per usual, with Dr. Yaffe. So the secure PCI trial enrolled more than 4,000 patients in multiple centers and even though it was a secondary analysis, it's really hard to ignore a 41% reduction in reinfarction going for PCI. And there were no cases of rhabdo or liver failure in the atorvastatin group. So it does beg the question should we add 80 milligrams of atorvastatin to the list of drugs we give for STEMI patients going for PCI? In my estimation, probably. Last up, we've got an excerpt from the expert panel at this year's EM Cases course, which will be repeating on June 24th, by the way. There are still tickets available. So I asked airway master George Kovacs, who ran an incredible workshop on awake intubation at the course, if he had any tips to maximizing the success of a cricothyrotomy. So can't intubate, can't ventilate. You're thinking of doing a cric. What are your tips of um, maximizing the chances
6: It's the ultimate halo uh, procedure high acuity low opportunity one that it gets a lot more airtime than anybody's going to actually have um, you know pragmatically and, and that's an important thing that doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about it and be good at it in fact it's the opposite one of the ironies of all halo scenarios, whether it be thoracotomy, wake intubation, or doing a, a surgical airway, is that uh, that one of the measures to increase success is to do what's called overlearn. Right, so so things you don't do. Um, very often, you have to spend more time than usual in practicing to do it. So that's number one, is that you have, to, you have to practice the mechanics of it. If I were to call out and put up a number on the screen, a 10-digit number, and ask for you to remember that, you'd have a low likelihood of recalling those 10 digits. But if I train you to tell you that that's a phone number... Right or there's uh, three groups of, of numbers, uh, you know, an area code, three digits, and a four digits, your brain's going to be able to to execute that. In the same way, you need to know, and there are 11 steps, ultimately, roughly, to do a properly done crike. And you can't go, okay, what's my next step? You need to have the motor memory to be able to execute that as one. So you need to be able to train to do that under indirect using uh, simulation. That's number one. Number two is that you need to make it the decision, and that's the, the greatest challenge in this. is Most of the time, we're doing it on dead patients, and we need to have permission in every case to say, this is a potential scenario where I might have to do a crike. It means that when you're gathering with your team and you explain to them what's going to happen, that includes talking about a crike. It includes palpating the neck of every patient that arrives that you're going to do an airway on. Right? And you need to know what your trigger is. So I can execute that, boom, I've trained, right? They'll do those 11 steps as one, but I need to know what's your cue. And there's a lot of debate about this. Is it a SAT? Is it a number or whatever? There is no number, and it's a combination of factors, right? So it's your inability to ventilate that patient, and you have two options to have that information. One is clinical, which really is shitty, especially when your heart rate's 180. Am I effectively, you know, mass ventilating? Do I get chest rise? You know, do I get that feel of BVM? You can do that. Or what you should all do is have waveform capnography hooked up to your BVM. That's the only thing that gives you breath-to-breath information before your SATs were gonna, are going to fall for you to, to at least be on standby. So if I've got an abnormal waveform in somebody that I'm trying to mass ventilate after I failed intubation, everybody in the room should know I'm going to have one go with the supraglottic and if that fails, I'm going to cut the neck. So ineffective ventilation, best cued by waveform capnography and a change or falling SATs. The technical part, two quick pearls, recognize that when you feel your larynx right now and try to move it, it, rem- it doesn't move very much. But the patient who's apneic, either you've rendered them that way or through unconsciousness they are apneic, that larynx moves like crazy from side to side. And you need to stabilize it before you cut because you're going to cut yourself or you're going to go in paratracheal.
0: The laryngeal handshake.
6: The laryngeal handshake, right? And then the the last pearl from a mechanical point of view is that uh, we're all going to do bougies. I don't think there's any role for doing a cannula approach that's biased, not based on on great evidence, but reasonable evidence. I'm going to use my bougie as my uh, Seldinger uh, technique, and I'm going to put my finger in the cricothyroid membrane that I've cut into Once you do that in a cadaver or in whatever scenario, you get the feeling of cartilage all around your finger, right? You'll never forget that feeling, and you're going to be able to palpate the bougie going alongside of it. And once it does go along, it's easy to place your endotracheal tube.
0: Well, that's it for this Quick Hits podcast. On the next Quick Hits podcast, we'll cover another important drug interaction with David Yerlink. We'll cover Ludwig's angina with Swami and a whole slew of Quick Hit goodies. So until next time, together, we're smarter.